When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. In episode one, we covered the early victims of the Speed Freak Killers. And during this episode, we will talk to some of their families to learn more about them, what they were like, and what led up to them going missing. Unfortunately, we have so far been unable to locate relatives of Henry Howell, Paul Kavanagh, Howard King, and Kimberly Ann Billy. But if anybody would like to speak to us about them, please get in touch through our website or Facebook page as we would love to include you in this podcast. As I'm sure you remember from episode one, Joanne Hobson went missing on the 29th of August 1985 when she was just 16 years old. Joanne's family did not find out what had happened to her for 27 years. Her remains were eventually found in a well, along with a number of other victims, recovered after Shermantine drew a map showing the location. We spoke to Joanne's mother, Miss Joan Shelley. Miss Shelley told us about her life, how she ended up in California, and what Joanne was like as a child. During her interview, Miss Shelley talks about some other girls who lived nearby, Robin, Chevy, and Tracy, who also became friends of Sherman Tyne and Herzog. I grew up in Virginia, Richmond, Virginia, in the Henrico County. From there, I went to California to meet my real mother because I was adopted. That's how I ended up in California. But in the meantime, I had married a guy that was in the U.S. Navy. He flew on the C-1s and the C-2 during Vietnam War. And I was over there in the Philippines with him for seven years. After we left there, we went to Patuxent, Maryland for three years. And then from there, he was shipped to California because that's where he was from. I moved to the east side of Stockton, up over Washington Street, down on the east side. That's where my kids and stuff went to school. Then I started working over there. I first was employed by Bosch or Electronics in Manteca. And then... 
Bosher Electronics closed down. And then from there, I went to Cherry Briners running a big machine on graveyard shift. And then they closed down. And then I went over to a packing company that was on Fairchild Road. It was like a cannery. They promoted me to like foreman, poor lady. And I worked there until Joanne disappeared. Chevy Wheeler, I could go out my front door and look down the street, which was a little street. And that's where the Wheelers live. Tracy Milton is the grandmother of my great-granddaughter. Her father was Tracy Milton's son, and my granddaughter married Tracy Milton's son. I didn't know her very well. Her mother, after Robin disappeared, her mother kept coming to my house. The girls used to all hang over there at Bird Park, and from what I understood through all this time is that the two guys would go to Bird Park. And Tracy Milton all also disappeared from Giannani Park because she lived on the other side. They were seen getting into a red truck at Bird Park that day that they disappeared. Robin never come back home, but Joanne did. And she had a date that night. She was like a free spirit, very like stubborn, she was very friendly. She thought everybody was her friend. She very trusting in people. Just she was a beautiful little girl. She was like four foot eight when she disappeared. She was like four foot eight and she weighed about eighty pounds. She was about the size of a nine or ten year old child. Just a little bitty teeny thing. And a lot of her friends used to call her Smurf because she was so little. She was just as cute as the button you Looking to her face, and she had the, she was freckle faced and a big brown eyes, red hair, like a, like my color. It was like an auburn. She used to sit in my bathroom sink and put on makeup. Before she put on her makeup, she looked like she was about nine years old. But once she got her makeup on, which she loved, then she looked her age. Without any makeup, no. She just looked like a little tiny little girl. And she used to hold the hairbrush up while she put on her make- makeup and sing like it was a microphone into in the sink, singing. Joanne left the house in the middle of the night through her bedroom window. She was due to go on a date earlier that evening, but had been stood up, and was asleep when her older sister Michelle checked in on her. We spoke to Michelle about what Joanne was like as a sister, and the events leading up to her going missing that night. I was 18. I knew a lot of her friends. I knew Robin. I knew Chevy. All her friends were actually my friends. My mom worked a lot, and I had to be the mom. I did everything. I made sure house clean, homework was done, baths, dinner, clothes, everything that a mom would do. For Joanne, she was a very strong-minded person, but she was a free spirit, too. She would be one of those people. She's a tree hugger. (laughs) How can I say it any better than that? Yeah. She loved animals, loved people. She was just free. You know how the house was right there? 
There was another house. Then there was a gas station used to be there. We used to live there. We, My, my stepfather owned that gas station when it, it wasn't a gas station. It was just a service station. When we moved from, from Maryland, we came to Stockton and a bus that he painted. It was like a, not hot pink, but it was a purplish pink color. And we drove across country to get here. His mother was lived here in Stockton, and I think this is where he grew up. So we came here. When we first moved here, we lived in a trailer park off Arch Road, off Sunny Road. Bought a house on Castle Oaks Drive. Then they sold that house, and he bought that gas station. So we took our, I think we took our, we had our RV, the bus, the RV, whatever. He made it into an RV. It was awesome. Oh, yeah, he made everything by wood. He did all that. And then so we lived there, and then my mom and him split, and my mom moved to Fox Creek, and we were in a duplex. And then she rented the house three doors down on Washington where you saw, and the house was green. The picture you showed me, it looks like it was like wrought iron fenced around, like the, I guess in the front of the house so people couldn't come in. There was just a little, like a little wrought iron across where you could sit on your porch. And the house looks the same. Inside, we had a garage, the living room. The kitchen was around that way. And then it, from the living room, there was a little hall. And my mom's bedroom was there, the bathroom, and then our bedroom, which all three of us girls shared. She's actually one who taught me how to French braid hair. We used to sit because my sister Sandra had really long hair. And we would sit and she'd teach me how to do it on the couch and stuff. My sister could fit in the sink to do her makeup, but strong-minded. Couldn't tell her nothing. Ricky Ginger Jack. He was a guy that we met when we lived on Fox Creek. And he had one arm and he was a really nice guy. Just good looking soul. I think he lived in Galt or his mom lived in Galt. She liked him. I had come home, I was pregnant when all this kind of was happening and I had just had Yvette. So like I was gone for a little while, so I don't know what was going on with the whole dynamics of the household. And then from there, it's hard to gain control once control's been lost. I was home with my baby, had dinner and all that. My sister, she was in the bathroom getting ready. And I was like, where are you going? And I was like, no, come on, tell me, you don't need to know. You don't need to know. I was like, no, you got to tell me. And she goes, oh, you don't know him. He's tall and good looking with blonde hair. Oh yeah, Ricky Ginger Jack? No, but he looks like him. Okay. So then it took her a long time to do her hair. She would do it and undo it, put her makeup on, take it off, put it on, take it off. Till she got it just the way she wanted it, you know. It was like, I don't know, probably 11 o'clock. And my baby, I put her to sleep. So I was like, I'm going to bed. Make sure you lock the front door. So I went in my room, my mom's room, because my mom wasn't home. She was working, so I slept in her room with the baby. And then when I went to get up, go to the bathroom and do my thing, get some more milk for mm -hmm. Yvette. She wasn't in the bathroom anymore, so I go in her room, and she's asleep on her bed, and her window's wide open. So I just went in there, and we always had the music going. I don't think we watched that much TV as kids. We always listened to the music. And the music was going, so I shut her window and covered up, shut the door, and went back to bed, and that was that. And then when we got up, she wasn't there. And mom asked me, do you know where Joanne's at? No, she said she was going out with her friends. 
Miss Shelley worked the night shift as the foreman at Fairchild Cannery. As a single parent, she worked hard and took the shifts that paid the most so that she could support herself and her family. We asked Miss Shelley about Joanne disappearing and the chain of events that led up to her realizing that she had not just gone off with a friend or boyfriend and that something was seriously wrong. She then goes on to tell us what happened when she called the police and how Detective Little mentioned that he thought Joanne might have been abducted by Sherman Tyne and Herzog. In our ongoing journey dissecting real-life mysteries, I've found a perfect companion in a game that not only captivates, but also lets me step into the shoes of a detective in the glamorous 1920s, June's Journey. As someone who's delved deep into the game, playing through the intriguing scenarios of June Parker, I can personally vouch for its immersive experience. In June's Journey, you unravel the mystery of June Parker's sister's murder. Each scene is a visual and intellectual puzzle, with hidden clues scattered across beautifully crafted locations. What I've enjoyed most is the depths of the storyline. Each chapter peels back a layer of this thrilling narrative, revealing danger, mystery, and romance. Besides the allure of solving mysteries, the game lets you design and customize your own luxurious estate island. Building my estate has been a delightful escape, offering a creative break from the intense narratives we tackle on the podcast. For those of you who enjoy the blend of history, mystery, and narrative depth we explore on this podcast, June's Journey offers a chance to live out those elements in a beautifully interactive setting. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android, and join me in this ongoing quest to uncover hidden truths and solve complex mysteries. When I came home from work about 7 in the morning, because I worked graveyard shift at Fairchild Henry, when I go in in the morning, I usually make me something to eat and then go to bed. And so I went in and I guess I ate breakfast. And then I checked on the girls to make sure that Michelle was there with her baby, which she was. And then when I checked in to the girls' room, Joanne was missing. And Sandra had been spending the night with a friend. And that's when I realized that she wasn't there at the house and the window was open. So I woke up Michelle and asked her, where's your sister Joanne? And she said, the last time I saw her, she was in bed, mom asleep. And then Michelle went on to tell me that she had a date with a guy, but she didn't know who it was. Joanne described the guy that she was had a date with, but she told Michelle, you don't know him, but in the description that she gave her sister, it was the description that would describe Ricky Ginger Jack. He was tall and muscular built. He had one arm, blonde hair, long blonde hair. So she said, is it Ricky Ginger Jack's sister? And Joanne said, no, you don't know who this guy is. Joanne had done that before, not crawl out of the house or anything, but she would go spend the night and then would call me till the next day. So I waited. At that time period, you couldn't report anybody missing until they were gone 72 hours. In that neighborhood, Joanne was not one to venture out that much out of the neighborhood. So I figured she's with a friend. She'll come home today or she'll give me a call or something. 
So that's why it took me longer to report her missing. Because they had a question, well, how come you didn't report her missing right away? I couldn't. You had to wait 72 hours. I think it was like the second day that I started to get worried. And I had sent the girls out looking for her, and nobody could find her. Nobody had seen her. Nobody, You know, me, I really didn't know a lot of the people they hung with because I was always working to find the support and take care of my children. I was their sole support. I didn't think that she was in danger. I just figured she'll be home when she gets home because she was like that, a free spirit. She thought she could do whatever she wanted to do, but she could. We were worried. We couldn't, didn't know where she was, couldn't find her. Nobody knew where she was. But then I started getting panicky. And I'd get there at work. I was still going to my graveyard shift. But after about four days of going to my work, I finally went into the bosses and told them, my daughter has disappeared. I cannot concentrate on my work. And at that time, we worked around real big machinery. And I was concerned that somebody might get hurt on a mistake I might make or I could get hurt. And, and I just told them, I can't concentrate on my job. I'm going to have to quit. Lay me off. Or, so they said they'd just lay me off. Because I said, I can't concentrate. I can't concentrate on my job. And I feel that I'm a danger to myself and everybody else that, you know, that I'm head of. I don't want to put anybody else in jeopardy. I called the police. And that's when Detective Little came to my house. He took note of what she looked like. And we gave her a picture of him, I think. What vicinity that we lived in. He just took all kinds of notes about her. And the first police that I talked to, they, they were the ones that sent Detective Little over to the house. But the first police I talked to, oh, she's not a, she's not missing. She's just a runaway. I said, no, she is not. My child would never leave this house with no clothes, no makeup, her purse, or anything like that. My child has no reason to run away. I love Detective Little. He, he was real good. And when I told him about the date, he told us not to mention about the date, just to keep that to ourselves. And he said, because eventually, maybe down the road, if they don't find her, it may come up. And sure enough, it did. The date was significant to him because, like I say, he had, he felt that, he told us she didn't run away. I think she was abducted. At that time, there had been a lot of girls in that area that had disappeared. And so I think that's probably why he said that, because they were looking into it, you know. You heard Miss Shelley mention the date being significant, and Detective Little asking her not to mention the date to anyone. We think that this is because Joanne Hobson and Robin Armtrout disappeared on the same day. We asked Miss Shelley how she thought Sherman Tyne and Herzog managed to abduct two girls on the same day. I feel that the girls used to all hang over there at Bird Park. And from what I've understood through all this time is that the two guys would go to Bird. And Tracy Milton all also disappeared from Giannani Park because she lived on the other side. It's, I really didn't know that Joanne was friends with Robin Armand Trout. But anyway, they were seen getting into a red truck at Bird Park that day that they disappeared. 
And, but Robin never come back home, but Joanne did. And she had a date that night. We found out later in the years that the date was with Lauren Corsog. She disappeared from our home. She climbed out the front window because I guess she was late picking her up. So she went to bed and my oldest daughter checked on her and she was asleep. And then when I got home, Joanne wasn't in the house. The front door was locked, but the window was open. So she climbed out the window to meet him. Never saw her again. Robin Armentrout disappeared that day. And then that night is when Joanne disappeared. Nobody was really talking because nobody knew anything. So we didn't really know. Detective Little had told us when we reported her missing, he had told us, now this was years before, that he had suspected the two of taking her, but he didn't have any evidence to prove that. And then a couple months later, he was killed in a shootout in Ripon. Joanne's sister, Michelle, was in the house when Joanne went missing. She told us what she remembers about the events after her mother came home and found Joanne's bedroom empty. Mom's asking me, and I'm like, I don't know. So then after a day or two, I went around calling people, went and talked to different people. Have you seen my sister? Have you done this? Have you that? Mom, we can't find her. So then Mom calls and makes the report like a week later. I think it was about a week. Then the cop said, oh, she just ran away. I told him, I said, I'm going to tell you right now, no girl runs away without taking her underwear or her makeup or her curling iron. I'm just telling you, this is the way we roll. And I, I argue with them and they were like, no, she ran away. No, she didn't. So she's gone for this amount of long time. So then we get a phone call from, I don't know, you can find your sister in the field in a field off wherever it was. So I call up my friends. Come on, we got to go. We got to go look for my sister. So I gather all my friends, and it's Donnie Smith, Bobby Shelton, and Jerry Smith, and just some people I knew. And we went over looking. We couldn't find her. I would call once a week. Have you got anything on my sister? Have you done this? Sorry, sorry. No, no, no. We're working on it. We're working on it. Then Dwight comes, and he says, Michelle, I know who took your sister, but I cannot prove it. He said, Wesley and Lauren, straight up. And he says, I know that they that they killed uh, Chevy too. Straight up told me. Because uh, Joanne came up before Chevy. We lived on Washington and Chevy lived on the next street. There's, It's not a full street, it's a half street. So he asked me, does Joanne know Chevy? Yes, yeah, she knows Chevy. <laughs> We know people. I was best friends with her boyfriend and that kind of stuff. I believed in him. And then he came up dead. And then that, to me, that was the end of that. Nobody else cared anymore. As you know, Joanne was not found until 27 years later. The circumstances of which are shocking. We will be talking to both Michelle and Miss Shelley in later episodes, where you will learn the true horror of what they went through as a family in their search for Joanne. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How's your social battery holding up? Mine's been draining lately, consumed by the darkness of true crime tales. But amidst the shadows, it's crucial to remember to prioritize our mental well-being. Just like unraveling a twisted plot, 
Therapy helps me untangle the knots in my mind. It's about gaining clarity, finding strength, and reclaiming control over your life. Considering therapy, BetterHelp offers a lifeline in the darkness. It's completely online, giving you the freedom to seek help in your own terms. And with a simple questionnaire, you can be matched with a licensed therapist who understands your unique struggles. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com foul today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash foul, F-O-U-L. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. In episode one, we also talked about the horrific death of Robin Armtrout, who was found violently raped and stabbed multiple times just a few days after Joanne disappeared. Unfortunately, many of Robin's family members have since passed away, but we did manage to speak to her niece, Catherine Gentry. She was my aunt, my dad's little sister. As bad as it was, and what this all drew out and came to be, I am thankful that at least she wasn't missing, that we had found her early on. I was 14. I just turned 14 when it happened. Two or three days prior to her getting into, being seen getting into this pickup, puzzly of certain times and whatnot, but I guess Grandma said that she's seen her get into a red pickup. But I know that two or three days prior to that, I seen Aunt Robin there in front of the same house, Grandma's house there, right on the corner, basically, like on Delmar. When I talked to her out in front of Grandma's house a couple days prior, before I guess she did come up missing, she showed up. She's grabbing a few things or whatever, but she asked me, she started asking me about some health issues, some problems that she was having health-wise. Because I was always breathing is why she's asking me this. And so I told her whatever it was I knew or, or so on and so forth. But I told her just to be sure whatever, I had the medical books there at home that next time I should come out, that we'd go over it. And she was like, okay, cool. And then she up and left. We were both like just going our own way that day, had plans or whatever, but... And that was the last time I seen her. So I figured I'd be seeing her within a couple of days. The next thing I know, I guess about a week later or so, whatever, is when we got the news that, and I believe what happened was, I don't even know for sure who it was, but they showed up out at the trailer out Highway 26, telling us that they found Robin. I don't know, it was like everything turned dark and quiet. The only thing that I remember ever really hearing about, which always stuck with me, at some point in time, mom had told me that she was stabbed. I don't think that she got very many details that day. Just that, yeah, someone had taken her out and killed her, which any one of us in the family or otherwise family friend who knew Robin 
we all, any one of us, all of us, believe that there had to be at least two, two people there. Because there was no way in hell that only one would have managed. She had no qualms about fighting anybody, anything, at any time. It just, I, it, she would, and she could get wild with it. Like, I remember seeing her one night. I'm a little kid, much younger. But I'm sitting in the back of my mom's car, me and my sister is. And mom had pulled up. Apparently she was fighting. Aunt Robin was fighting with someone out there in East Side Stockton. And, but I don't know how long we sat out in that car. But what I do remember witnessing is that the cop, there was a couple of them that had a hold of Robin. One had a hold of her legs and the other had a hold of her had a hold of her with his arms wrapped around her like chest arms they were trying to carry her to the car but they were having a hell of a time doing it she was just still fighting a belt we just we it wouldn't matter not one person would be able to just do her in like that were you there when the police came and told your family about robin i was there i didn't see them i sat in the living room Someone had come up to the door. I know that mom went out there to talk to someone. I didn't know for sure where's who it was that showed up at the door or what. But so then your mom came back and explained to you what she heard. Yeah, I can't even say that I remember her exact words. Yeah, she just said it, and basically she went straight to her room. Yeah, she went straight to her room stayed there for a while I I think I was more or less in shock didn't understand why or how could it have happened and then soon after that which I want to say was maybe a few weeks something was said about them finding her clothes out there somewhere near where they had found her not long before the last time I'd seen her which was at the beginning of September there she had actually started dating the chick girl. Robin, as as wild as she'd be and quick to go ahead and spar it out with someone or anything, she also had one of the softest or biggest hearts you couldn't even imagine. And I remember seeing her go through one or two heartbreaks, actually, you know, where and I think she was just tired of being hurt. We were close to her. We loved her. Whatever made her happy is what, how we felt. I know that. My dad was uh, talking to me over the phone. I don't remember where he was at the time, but he asked me if the name Shermantine sounded, if I recognized that name. And I said, no, I can't say it. No, not at all. And that's when I first heard of it. And I want to say it was at least, what, 12, 13 years into it. I think that however she met them or it come to be that because she, she'd go, go party with you. She'd go party with anybody. Her thing was drinking though. She loved her Thunderbird. I want to say that guys lived out in Linden and we just lived just a few miles away from there. Yeah, sure. They all agreed they're going to go hang out and party and kick it, this and that. And then they could just drop her off and or even maybe even come in and party with there at my house, my mom's house. So being that it'd be right there, she was loved very much. 
And like I said, when this news came to us, it was like, it was the weirdest thing. It was like, everything just went dark. And you didn't hear or see nothing else. Everything just went dark and quiet. Nobody, I think it, it surprised us all. Even though she had been in a few dangerous situations or been through a couple of incidents prior where this could have happened, sure. We just didn't, it was hard to believe. On October 16th, 1985, just six weeks after Robin Armtrout's body was found, Chevy Wheeler, a 16-year-old schoolgirl who lived in the same neighborhood as Joanne and Robin, went missing. Chevy's remains were found 27 years later, buried in a shallow grave. The location was drawn by Sherman Tyne on a map. In our next episode, we will talk to the family of Chevy Wheeler. We will also be discussing some of the many assaults and abductions that Sherman Tyne is known to have carried out on female victims throughout the 80s and 90s. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.